Welcome, this is Donald Dennis, and before we get into this episode of the Games and Schools and Libraries podcast, I wanted to let you know that we are coming up on ShrushCon, which is March 22nd through 24th, here in Polly's Island, South Carolina, just south of Myrtle Beach, north of Charleston. It's going to be an exciting, exciting time. The big deal is, though, that on the Friday, the 22nd, from 10 to 1, we're going to be covering story games. Now, that's going to include... Of course, role-playing games, Untold Adventures Awaits from the fine folks over at Hub Games, and many, many other games, be it some board games, some role-playing games, maybe even a little bit of LARP if we can find someone to help us with that. Um, so, come play, learn about how to use games in your library, or if you have something that you want to share, because I'm sure that a bunch of you out there have knowledge that I do not, I'm sure that we would love to have you here and showing off and sharing your knowledge. So... Once again, that's ShushCon, March 24th through 25th in Polly's Island, South Carolina. And so, yeah, come on in, join us, tell us all about what you're doing with story games in libraries. Hey, and welcome to Games in Schools and Libraries, an inverse genius podcast. Produced in association with the Georgetown County Library System somewhere in South Carolina. In Games in Schools and Libraries, we strive to provide insights and ideas for utilizing games of all types, digital, tabletop, or live scale in your library or classroom. You can find out more about GSL and the people who create the show by visiting InverseGenius.com. I'm Kathleen Mercury, gamer, teacher, game designer. I share all of my game design teaching resources for free at KathleenMercury.com. And you can find me on Twitter at, at Mercury with 7Ms and hear more of my opinions on podcasts, on the podcast, on board games, and our turn, among others. Today, we are absolutely lucky, delighted, and um, just besides ourselves with pure joy to have Dr. Bob on the show. Um, okay, I'll say Dr. Bob Shooter, who I don't know why I started calling you Dr. Bob, but nevertheless. Okay, so Bob the Shooter, uh, we met at Nisaga, the uh, surprisingly fun and uh, really interesting game conference that people should check out for next year. Um, and Bob does really interesting work in the field of games and meaningful gaming experiences for older adults. So, uh, Bob, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, where people can find you, your background, what you do, and we'll go ahead and get started. Sure, Kathleen. Um, yeah, thanks for having me. Um, all right, so um, I'm from Belgium. That's why I have a weird accent. And um, I work at Miami University of Ohio um, as a professor in applied game design. And I make games, I teach about games, um, I play games from time to time, I guess. Um, you know, not very often. <laughs> we don't really, yeah, we don't really have time for that. Um, but yeah, that's kind of um, what I do. I think, um, what else is there to say? Like, um, I, I, I study why 50 plus year olds um, should play games or like to play games. And um, yeah, I think that's pretty much it for an introduction. Okay. Well, actually, so I have a question. So, yeah, yeah. Um, you went to school in Belgium, where you're yeah. from, um, and got your PhD there in game design. Um, what led you to that sort of interest as far as turning this into like a scholarly study? How did that process come about? Oh, right, right. Um, actually, was this was this question on the sheet? I think we shouldn't do questions that we haven't prepared, Kathleen. Uh, <laughs> I'm messing with you, but. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the thing is, um, yes, <laughs> um, lively. <laughs> yes, please. Um, so, <laughs> so the way that kind of went was um, ever since I was a little boy, which might be hard to fathom since I'm six foot eight. But 
Um, I always wanted to do something uh, with games. Um, I think it actually started when my mom didn't want to buy me a Nintendo, like the NES one, the 8-bit one. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, like I really wanted that and my mom didn't want to get it for me. And I like, you know, you go to the store and you see Mario Brothers and oh my God, that looked so cool back then in the 80s. And um, yeah, I didn't get it. So I just started to make my own. Um, I, you know, I just got paper and I started to cut out my own little figure that was Mario then and I made my own levels that way and I'm playing the worst Mario Brothers paper prototype ever made by, I don't know, an eight-year-old? I, I don't know. Like, <laughs> but, um, that's Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's kind of how these things got started for me, honestly. Um, from there on out, you know, I, I discovered BASIC, um, started programming things, um, animations first. <laughs> Really, really poorly made animations, but I, you know, as as a kid, it's pretty. It was really fun, and this is before the internet, so you know, I went to the library, get some books on how to program basic, which weren't even books for kids, you know, just for adults, and try to figure out uh, how to make the stuff that I wanted to make. And I think from there, I just kept going. Really, um, you know, at, at, at some point. Um, yeah, I, it was time for me to go to college, I guess, and I was like, well, I, I want to do something with graphic design type of work or something, or some artwork, so I went to art school, and um, a couple, well, pretty much immediately, I guess, I just decided, like, making games is more fun, or making interactive stuff is more fun than making non-interactive stuff, and I got back to games that way, and uh, started to make some games there, um, and then, yeah, I, I, I wasn't really ready to go to to really go to the professional field yet, to go into the private sector. So I felt like I, I want to do something else. And my dad actually has a PhD. So um, he kind of convinced me, try to get a PhD as well, because, you know, you should be able to get one. And um, there wasn't really a PhD program in games in Belgium. So I just, I, I had read a book from a professor about games who happened to be in uh, the biggest university in Belgium. So I just gave him a phone call. I was like, hey, can I do a PhD on games with you? And he's like, no. So I'm like, oh, <laughs> damn, that, that kind of sucked. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I'm like, well, could I just, you know, buy you a beer, have a talk with you or something? Because I really like your book. And, you know, I, I called him a couple of times, like, are you sure? And eventually it's like, okay, okay, fine. So, yeah, basically stalking. And um, <laughs> I got an appointment in his office, like, you know, he's like, okay, come down for 15 minutes. I'll talk with you and I'll tell you what you should do. And I went in, I'm like, this is what I want to do my PhD on. And eventually he cracked. And because um, this was in communication science and I didn't know anything about communication science. So, yeah. <laughs> you know, that he was a professor. And, um, but yeah, no, we, we um, there was a program in Belgium that you could do to transfer from another area into communication science. Um, I, I did that. And then. I ended up writing a PhD on, on um, why 50-plus-year-olds um, play video games or what the meaning of video games are in their lives. Um, and that's how the scholarly thing happened. So, it, you know, it, it started a little bit with me just being um, interested in the field and, and there being some passion in my early life for it, I guess. Mm -hmm. And then it just um, serendipity, I guess, or just, yeah. I, I always do things that are kind of offbeat and, and not really... The beaten path and, and that's kind of how I got in here and um, you know now I'm a professor <laughs> I never really wanted to be a professor but you know it just happened <laughs> right. you're like a little so, Belgian yeah. train that could you know yes except for going over mountains since there are none I guess it's just all around like tulip 
It's pretty flat, yeah. No, that's the Netherlands Kathleen, seriously. <laughs> I know, that was my joke. Um, yeah, that was a good one. Thank you. Good job on your perseverance. Um, okay, well, so here's the thing, though. I mean, it's an odd sort of topic. Um, you know, games and the elderly. Like, how did you land on that as far as, you know, like, study and then, like, I mean, and in some ways, maybe it's one thing to do your, your PhD on it, but another thing to actually, like, turn this into, like, what you do, both in terms of, like, theoretical research, but also, like, in practical game design. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, the, the PhD thing, um, well, you know, my dad played a big part in me going for a PhD, but the topic was basically a result of that um, transition program that I was in. Um, because, well, you know, you go into that transition program in a field that you don't really know much about, except that there's this one guy that wrote a book about video games that's in that field. Mm -hmm. So, you know, for me, that was, okay, I'm going into this field now and I need to know. And communication science is a lot about television research and what the effects of television are on the people or why people would um, watch television and, and, and print media as well. Um, and most of the readings that I had to do to get through that transition year all had to do with television. Now, what happened there was one of the readings that I had to go through was um, was one on parasocial interaction um, and using gratifications of um, television for the elderly. So the, the big idea there is that um, people over 70 that are living by themselves and that are very lonesome um, watch television to get parasocial interaction, as they call it then in the literature. And, um, yeah, you know, it, it's, it's a feeling, a gratification of interacting with somebody, even though there's not really somebody there. You're basically watching soap operas and you're just, mm -hmm. you know, really getting invested in the lives of the people on television. So when I read that article, I was like, wow, this is, you know, kind of silly. It's really these days. sad. Yeah, it's sad. And, um, you know, like, at that time, World of Warcraft was new, but it was a, you know it, it started to emerge, and mm -hmm. I, I I just felt like oh my gosh, um, I could just see older adults start to play World of Warcraft. I mean, if they would know, you know, if this is the reason why you're watching television. Why not go into World of Warcraft? It's so much better. Like you can talk to real people. You can you know you can make connections. And yeah, sure, you might not you might not be able to get out of the house easily. Um, you know, there might be a whole lot of reasons why it's hard for you to make these connections in real life, but behind your computer, uh, an entire world might open up, um, especially, you know, if the accessibility of the, of the game is good. So that's kind of what triggered it for me. It was just this mismatch between um, what I saw out there and, and what I saw in the literature. And it's just, you know, I, at, at that point in time, I felt like games and aging is going to be a big thing one day. Um, I, 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 and I still believe that at some point a lot of retirement homes will, you know, have that kind of technology. And then, um, I mean, it's similar to uh, Facebook now coming out with that, with basically with Skype, um, you know, with a camera system and, and a TV to, to connect to your loved ones. I mean, you could do that in a gamified way as well. And all of a sudden, oh my gosh, it's an MMORPG. So um, that's kind of how it started. And um, originally when I, when I got into that, I talked to a bunch of professors at the university and they all felt that it was a, you know, a dead track. There was never going to be older adults playing games. And even if I wanted to do a PhD on it at that point in time, I would never find enough people to do research with. Mm -hmm. um, so they were wrong. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was great. They were wrong. <laughs> I got the PhD. Um, 
you know, and it, it went pretty well from there. Um, but yeah, that's, that's kind of how I got into that specific topic. Um, and well, the, you know, the other side of it, but I don't talk that much about it. it you know, it's all self-interest, obviously. I just want to have good games in the retirement home when I um, eventually retire. <laughs> So and, you're playing uh, the very long game here. Yeah, yeah. It's like, you know, that's that's when life really starts, so. <laughs> <laughs> that's when you can really grind. Yeah. stories. Um, yeah, apparently. Well, I'll stop. I won't say what I was going to say. Uh, I would just say, never mind. Um, okay. So, <laughs> so, um, so, did, so you're at Miami University in Ohio. Yes at the Ames Game Center. And what I think is interesting, like how they describe it is Miami University's nationally recognized center that explores how innovative games related technology can impact culture and society. So did you go straight from your research to Ames or was there a time in between or what about that sort of like intersection? This is my question. Sure. Um, why are you so interested in that intersection between games and culture and society? Um, you know, that's kind of where everything comes together, I, I think, you know, like, um, I think as a game designer, because that's really, well, my jam, to put it <laughs> mm -hmm. that way, um, what interests me the most is, is designing games, and I, I don't think you can design games in a vacuum, you, you know, it's, it's always, if you look at the, at the most established game design methods out there, it always comes down to looking at what your audience once what what kind of experience you want to elicit um, with your players so that experience happens within that cultural intersection uh with the medium and that's just why um yeah i have a strong interest in that because i don't think you can, I, I i like to think that as an artist i can make whatever game that i want and <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, it doesn't matter you know what my player eventually wants. It's it's all, and it should be all about me. But you know, it it's never that way. Like even if you, even if you really want to just make exactly the game that's exactly the way you want it, as soon as you see somebody play it and they don't get the experience that you hope they get, it just crumbles and you really feel like, oh dang it, I'm just gonna change it and you know make sure that they do get the experience that I want from it. So it's it, it's always looking at. Um, what kind of people will be playing your game, what cultural perspectives that they'll bring in, how, um, and, and basically how everything comes together that way. Yeah, no, I get it, because we're filming this in the period in between uh, BGG Con and PAX, and I showed one of my games to some publishers, and there's a publisher who's interested in it, and then I got home, and uh, my boyfriend Mark and I immediately like got to work changing all kinds of stuff in the game. Like, after we record this, I'm going to go uh, do some playtest sessions that we're running. So, you know, so what they see is going to be a little bit different than what I showed them before. But again, it's that, like, you know, always trying to make it better. And so, yeah, no, I get that. Good ideas are never finished. And we could work on this game for years, and I don't think we'll ever totally nail it. So, at some point, you just got to call it done. But, oh, yeah, that's definitely the case. Yeah. Well, let's talk about Brukel, then. So, this is, sure. um, this is the the game that you were um, showing off at Nasaga and um, it's really like, I had never seen anything like this with like the intent and purpose. So um, talk about Brugel because you yeah. also just come from meaningful play where you've gotten some awards for it too, which is super cool. So uh, tell yeah. us about Brugel. Okay. So, um, well, the short version of the, of the story would, would probably be that Brugel is a game about my 90 plus year old grandmother, uh, and her childhood years, really. Um, 
living in Belgium in a farm. Um, and, you know, at some point, I think around the time she was 14, the Second World War broke out, and the front line of the war happened to be um, basically running through their backyard. Um, so the idea, you know, that, that, that's, that's the gist what I'm working with. So I interviewed my grandmother for about five hours um, in different sessions, obviously, because that would be a lot, um, and multiple takes of the same stories, and I just asked her to reminisce. So. Um, I've been referring to Bruegel as a gamma-nissing game, like gamified reminiscing. And um, what I'm trying to do there is to, um, to some extent, recreate some of her stories, but the, the, the bigger part of it is just to have people experience her, her point of view on, on, on what happened to her when she was younger and to create a sense of empathy for what it's like to be in, an innocent bystander in, um, in a war, really. Um, well, in this day and age, I feel that, um, especially if you look in the media, there's so many movies out there that are all about glorified war heroes or video games that are all about the heroic soldier saving the day for a specific nation. Um, and I've never really grown up with that. My entire life, my, my grandmother uh, made sure that me and my little brother were always very well aware of how lucky we were that we didn't have to live a life as she had to live. I mean, she's, you know, by the time she was 12, she couldn't go to co uh, couldn't go to, to school anymore because she had to work the field and then help with the family because her mother died really young uh, because they didn't have any penicillin. Um, and um, then that entire war thing happened. And yeah, like there's nothing to be glorified about that entire story. It's really grim, and they're really lucky to have come out of it alive. Um, and well, some of them didn't really come out of it alive either, and everybody came out of it traumatized. So, uh, you know, that's kind of what I'm trying to do with Bruegel for, for, to archive that history to some extent, but it's not just the archival part. It's, it's, it's more about uh, passing on her legacy in a similar way that she passed it on to me and my brother, I guess, to younger generations that don't really have a grandmother anymore that went through something like that. Cause, well, in today's media, I mean, it, you know, it's so easy oftentimes to hear politicians talk really, really big, like, yes, if, if this or that happens, we'll drop some nukes or we'll do, you know, we'll, we'll go to war with him. And oh my gosh, those things are just so ridiculous if, if you actually have any understanding of how these things um, actually are. So that's, for me, what Bruegel is really about. Anyway, <laughs> a little bit of a tangent, I guess. <laughs> no, I think it's, well, I mean, what's really interesting, too, though, is it's not just about, you know, games, because you had just gone from talking about World of Warcraft, and, uh -huh. you know, have games that, you know, for older people to play, but you're also talking about games that feature older people. So you're kind yeah. of looking at gaming from both perspectives, both in terms of content as well as the user. Yeah, I think, um, like, for me as a scholar, I, I think that's, one thing that makes my work unique in comparison to most of my colleagues, um, like when it comes to games and aging research, most people are doing effect studies or accessibility style studies. And it's always just a question of, um, you know, are there any benefits of playing digital games in later life? Can it help you with fall prevention? Can it uh, cure Alzheimer to say something really dramatic? Um, or on the other hand, it's like, okay, can we, you know, help, people be more social when they're older. Um, and that's exactly the kind of research that I'm not 
as interested in, although the social aspect and you know any beneficial aspects are fine with me. The biggest thing for me is always the cultural aspect of it. Is it, you know, to what extent can games be a part of growing older? And I kind of feel like all those, you know, all those effects, all those benefits are just side effects, really. Um, and the bigger goal out there is just to make playing games and having a playful attitude to life and getting all the the benefits that are not necessarily, you know, as um, academic, maybe. Because um, if you play games, there, there's so much good that that can do for you. And just, you know, it's just system thinking as well. There, there, there's making social connections with people. I mean, um, critical thought. You know, there's so many things that a game can do, taking the perspective of somebody else, which is what Bruegel is trying to do. Uh, that is not necessarily something that you would study as an effect study, I would argue. So I think that's what, you know, for me, it's always like, I, since I am so multidisciplinary in my background, doing art, doing communication science, I've done some psychology left and right. I've, um, in high school, I was in the mathematics engineering program. For me, it's, it's, it's more like I go into a field and I do what I think is interesting rather than that I'm like, okay, I want to be the best communication scientist in the world or I want to be the best artist in the world or like, that doesn't really matter as much to me as um, just trying to do something that I think is really useful. And this topic of games and aging is really unexplored that way. Because, I mean, I've done workshops with older adults, like just sat down with a, with a group of 20 of them and then just, okay, let's start making games now. What kind of games would you like to play this man out there? Let's make them, you know? Um, and that was really fun too. Or um, just like, okay, let's do an indie game night with older adults and just bring out games like Gone Home or... Um, Papers, Please was very popular. And, like, um, you know, those are things that are not necessarily going to get me published in Nature or, or like, the biggest uh, journal out there. Mm -hmm. But I think they're more valuable, personally. Um, I, I, yeah, I, I just like doing those types of things more, and I just like to see what the possibility space of games and aging really is. So um, I've been doing a lot of research. Um, I've been doing a lot of design work and workshops, introducing new games to older adults. And my latest um, project then is Brukel, where it's, you know, all about gammonising. <laughs> uh, do you find that, um, do older people have a different response to Brukel than younger people who maybe haven't experienced war? Right. Well, um, it's been a while since I, since I had anybody over 50 play, um, um, the latest version of Bruegel, I think, but I did an extensive playtest with a prototype, um, which was made in Twine at the time. But um, it was highly noticeable how, for older adults, a lot of them are the, what do you call it again, the, po the post-war generation. Mm -hmm. um, so for them, these stories are, are very different than when you would have um, a 12-year-old play the game. I think the youngest, I don't know if I can actually say that, because I think the youngest person that has played anything from Bruegel right now is 16. But at the same time, Bruegel has a lot of mature themes. Nothing really violent or gory or sexual, but um, it's, it's fairly heavy. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, I think, I, I don't think I'm going to get a lot of people under 16 playing it anyways. But, um, you know, I think for now, it's um, for people over 50, it's, the history is closer to them than for people that are younger, obviously and literally. Um, but at the same time, from, from, you know, when you get college students to play it, all of a sudden they are like, yeah, my, my, my grandmother or her, or her parents, um, you know, they were actively involved with World War II and 
Um, I had a student talk about that they still have documents laying around from from um, from Nazis and, and and stuff like that. And you know, I think everybody in some way still has a connection to the Second World War if you're over twenty. Um, so all those, you know, at, at this point in time, I don't think the disconnect is as big as it's going to get later on. Um, but you know, that's a good thing about a game. I mean, these things can stick around for a while. Yeah. Well, and I think it's interesting too because like what you're talking about, and I think this. You know, even like game design as a scholarly sort of field is still relatively new. And it's kind of strange if you think about, you know, that people have been playing games for thousands and thousands of years, you know, but we're just now starting to really look at games. And probably because, you know, so many of us, you know, have devices that have, I mean, I was, you know, playing a game on my phone while dinner was cooking, you know, I mean, games are just such a part of our lives. It's such a part of our lives for students. You know, you see a lot of gamification happening in classrooms because, um, kids play games, so a way to increase engagement and all that. So I think it's interesting. It sounds like, you know, science 200 years ago, when you didn't necessarily have to have, like, a particular discipline, you could just be a scientist. I mean, my great-great-grandfather, you know, started the uh, Iowa, um, Iowa Weather Service. He did a lot of work in crystallography and chemistry, you know, in all these different fields, because back then you could just kind of do science. And it sounds like in a lot of ways... Like this area that you're exploring has, you know, you're kind of dancing around the edges of dis different disciplines and seeing how they, they're all stitched together. And I think that's really interesting. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I'm, I'm, I'm blessed to be in this day and age where, you know, these possibilities are actually there. Uh, for example, if I just think back about my dad, when, when he did his PhD at the same university, um, you know, times were very different. I don't think something as, as eclectic as what I'm doing would even, you know, be considered to do a PhD on. Mm -hmm. um, but it's, I, I think that's a good thing, honestly. I think some of the most interesting findings are often um, outside of these boxes that science is kind of crammed in these days. Um, mm -hmm. And um, I think that's, that's always a good thing. I, you know, I also like that um, at Miami, for example, they, they do value my public speaking for non-academic audiences or, you know, me collaborating with industry um, people to, well, sometimes to consult them and help them out with making sure that their game would be appreciated by older adults and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. um, and the university um, supports these things. And um, I think the biggest thing for me, honestly, is that I've, I've, I've had some publications with, you know, where it's basically I'm collaborating with somebody and, um, I check in a couple of times and I help a little bit with the paper, but I'm not putting in, you know, like 70% of my time or something and, and doing the research or writing the paper. Um, and those are mostly for the last three years, I've been publishing a couple of times like that, but I haven't really done a big research project over three years because I've been working on a really big creative project. Mm -hmm. Um, one that is probably bigger, you know, than something that I should take on myself, but um, at the end of the day, the university supports me doing that, and um, you know it's 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 valued in the same way as if I would have written a book. Um, maybe I need to convince them that it's more like writing two books. Because <laughs> 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 making games is a lot harder than, than than you know just writing academic texts. Oh yeah, academic. no, absolutely. Uh, oh my lord! But yeah. you know, at the same time, Miami is good that way. Um, like if I if I think back of the university where I got my PhD, that's. Um, I mean, they're ranked top 60, top 50 in the world annually. So, you know, they're a university that goes back to 1408, I think. 
mm. um, or 1425. Like, well, anyway, sure doesn't really matter. Span but of years really matters. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I've really insulted some people right now. I'm sure, but uh, <laughs> but it goes way back, and you know they have that kind of history, and I don't. I don't. I don't know if, if if I would be a professor there. They that they would be as flexible with me doing this kind of work. I mean, this is all still relatively new, and some universities are are seeing the light that a lot of interesting stuff can happen this way. But at the same time, you know, once Bruegel is done, I'm currently I'm thinking, and I've talked to a couple of colleagues abroad about um, acquiring some funding so that we can compare um, the differences in in um, teaching effectiveness of playing a game like Bruegel versus playing the Twine um, digital web-based prototype of it versus um, a control group. Um, just to see, because Bruegel is a very beautiful game, mm -hmm. um, and the prototype I mean, just, has no graphics just, at all. Yeah, I didn't get a chance to see it. I, um, I watched people playing it nearby. Um, but basically, it has the, the look of sort of like a first-person shooter kind of game, although there's you know you don't have a gun. And basically, you spend the first part of the game going through um, a recreation, a 3D model of the, a farmhouse that was similar to what your grandmother lived in in Belgium. And you go through and you take photos of all these different objects. And as you explained back then, you do this so that people care, that people become invested in the lives of the people by looking at the different you know, objects and artifacts um, of their lives. And then at one point, there's a, a jump scare that you were very excited about watching somebody like jump out of their chair while they were playing. It was pretty great, actually. And then, um, then the horror part of the game kicks in, and that's where these darker sort of memories that your grandmother had about the war in terms of like interaction with different soldiers and family, all of that comes to play. And so you've spent that first part of the game building up that care and concern you know, you know, establishing, you know, some sort of relationship between the player and the subject. And then the, you start to become very fearful of their lives and you have it where they can actually, you know, they can make wrong decisions and they can die over the course of the game. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and um, yeah, I'm glad that you gave us synopsis because <laughs> that probably clarified a lot of the things that I'm trying to do with the game. Mm -hmm. But like, yeah, and I think, you know, as you describe it, it's... Um, it's quite the experience. I mean, um, audiovisually, a lot of stuff is, is going on. Mm -hmm. um, and it's, it's really, trans I mean, it's not VR, but it is transporting you into this fictional world that has a lot of um, actual historical elements to it. Um, and yeah, so the question that I'm thinking of for a research project would be like, okay, do you need to do all that kind of stuff um, to facilitate effective learning of the history? Or can we do the same with a much... Um, easier to develop game that's all text-based. Um, and what I can do is I can make exactly the same game, not the same experience, because one will have all the audiovisual stuff and the other will be text-based, but it will be exactly the same story, the exact same characters, made by the same person. Like, you know, being able to do that kind of stuff for research, that's, that's a holy grail for a lot of communication scientists uh, back in the days when I did a lot of communication science conferences. I mean, a lot of them are trying to figure out if there's an effect, either negative or positive, on the player by comparing these games. And you know, it's if you want to do that with commercially made games, you can mod them to some extent, but it's really hard to just control all the variables that you want to control. And well, if you are the game designer of the game and it has that kind of a quality, where I mean, I remember at Meaningful Play, somebody uh, stopped by and we were talking about the game. And at some point, he says, "Like, yeah, the graphics are as good as Gone Home." I'm like. 
they're as good as Gone Home. He's like, oh yeah, they're actually better. I'm like, wow, <laughs> Gone Home is a commercial game made by industry veterans. Like, <laughs> you know, I never saw Bruegel being that beautiful from my own perspective, because as a designer, you only see the stuff that's wrong with it. Right. But um, yeah, but you know, like, hey, if, if Bruegel looks as good as Gone Home, that's a pretty interesting case study that I can do with it afterwards. So. Um, you know, just to, to back up my, my statement that I think a lot of the, the interesting stuff to move science forward happens when you either have a lot of cool interdisciplinary collaborations or you have researchers that actually aren't that interdisciplinary that they could just as well work in the industry as do, uh, you know, a scientific experiment. Mm-hmm. Um, we've got some other questions sort of offshooting off Bruegel, both in terms of the design work that you do, um, the design work we did at Nisaga, but... Going back just a little bit to um, older adults, just even playing games, um, what's important for accessibility for older adults to play games? Is there any difference between, you know, somebody just downloading an app on the phone, whether they're 13 or 30 or 60, right. or what's important for accessibility? Right. Um, well, for older adults, um, it's, it's pretty much a subset. Like, if you want to make your game accessible in general, you know, there's a long list in the IGDA. Um, accessibility group. Um, we can probably put their their link um, with the materials of the podcast. Sure. But um, they, uh, you know, they have a website filled with with what you can do to accommodate specific um, disabilities. Um, and older adults are pretty much a subset of it. I don't think there there are any accommodations that you won't find in younger age groups for for uh, gamers with, with disabilities. Um, but, you know, a lot of these things come, come down to things that are very obvious where it's like, okay, just make the font bigger um, or don't make the game too hard. Well, you can make the game hard because actually making games hard can be beneficial because I've noticed that a lot of older adults really like their games to be hard. Mm-hmm. Um, you don't necessarily have to make it easy. You just have to provide the option to make it easier in case somebody wants to. Um, and other things are a lot less obvious. For example, the kinds of frequencies that you can use for your audio. Um, to make sure that everybody will hear what the characters are saying. Um, so, you know, the accommodations that you make for accessibility, uh, it's an extensive list, but at the same time, as long as you try to do as much as you can, um, it already helps so many people. And I, I always felt that, that that's the, the cool part of, of accessibility. And I, with Bruegel myself, like, I've tried to do as much as I can, and at some point it's just like, okay, this is where I have to draw a line, but... I'm, I'm really proud that, you know, I've been able to draw the line after the subtitles are in there and the subtitles have different colors for different uh, characters and uh, the name of the character pops up on screen as well and there's a black box behind it and um, every button in the game can be remapped to whatever button that you want that if you happen to be a gamer in a wheelchair with a very, you know, complicated control setup, you can map everything exactly the way you want it and um, that cost me a ton, a ton of time. But at the same time, I, I hope it's worth it. <laughs> I hope there's going to be at least one person out there that, you know, for each of the accessibility accommodations that I did. Um, but at the same time, I think, you know, for a professional company, it's different. They, for them, it's not going to be that much of an investment to, to put those things in there. For me, it's just harder because I have to do everything myself and I have right. to find time in my other schedule. Um, and yeah, hopefully, you know, as we move forward, more game engines will be aware of this because... Unreal does a good job in a lot of aspects, but there were still things that I had to program myself. Um, and, you know, it would have been a lot cooler if the engine, for example, had the, bu- the button mapping already completely built in. They have it built in for like 75%, but they don't have everything. Mm-hmm. Um, 
so you know, moving forward, hopefully uh, we'll see a change there in the near future. But yeah, that's kind of what it comes down to. If you want to make a game for older adults, you just have to make sure you do your accessibility work. So for some of these um, different things you did to increase accessibility, were some of these things that you did um, novel and that you've never seen them done before, or was it just your first time doing them? No, it's my first time doing them. Because, mm -hmm. um, yeah, that kind of <laughs> studying games and aging made me a lot more mindful of uh, the needs that people have out there. Because, you know, it's if, if you're if you're com a completely able-bodied gamer, it's 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 easy to think that oh, bad, that's not too big of an issue, or I'm sure they can do this, or I'm sure they can do that. Um, and yeah, it really doesn't work that way. <laughs> you know, there's 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 like for example, every color in Bruegel now is 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 picked out for colorblindness, and it's a lot of research to figure out how you want to do this. So. Um, but I think if you've done it a couple of times, it, it'll, it'll become a lot quicker and a lot easier to implement it as well. Mm -hmm. But um, I, I don't think I've had to do anything that nobody's ever done before. Um, you know, like I said, what I've tried to do for Brooklyn is just put the minimum in there that I can do within the amount of time I have available for it, honestly. Yeah. Um, well, uh, really quick, one last thing about Brooklyn. Our well, there's yeah. a few more other questions, but for Brugel, is this something that people can gain access now to play, or is it something that... Not right now, no. So I think, uh, I was shooting for the, the summer, but I've, um, we're, we're, I'm currently talking to people, and there's it looks very likely that there's going to be a premiere in, um, in my grandma's hometown, because, um, yeah, I got a... Um, I actually had somebody on the, um, the city council contact me, if they, because it happens to be that the Second World War's 75th anniversary is in 2019, mm -hmm. um, or well, not the anniversary of the war, but the anniversary of the liberation of the town. Um, so they're like, can we do an exhibit with Bruegel? Um, so we're talking about that right now. And um, Miami and Oxford were, since I've been working on it for so long, we're doing an exhibit there probably as well. And both of them are going to be in September. So. I'm probably releasing around the time of the exhibits now as opposed to originally the plan was July, but I'm just going to do a little bit more marketing for two months and then release yeah. it when the, when the exhibits happen. Um, in the meanwhile, um, the trailer for Bruegel, which is a short one minute, because for the trailer, that was kind of an interesting question, actually, from a design perspective, because since this is a game, and I, I think that might be interesting for listeners as well. Um, what I noticed in a lot of my research um, with older adults, um, and older adults, and I apologize to everybody over 50, but yeah, uh, that's where it starts in the research, 50-plus-year-olds. Mm -hmm. um, uh, for a lot of older adults, I, 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 I heard that like a lot of people feel that they don't necessarily want to put 70 hours into a, into a narrative game. Um, and I kind of, you know, the older I got, the more I started to feel like, yeah, why, why, why is this? I mean... This is probably because a lot of games are marketed towards a population that actually doesn't have that much to do. And, um, you know, they want to have 70-hour experience and get the most bang for their bucks. And that's absolutely fine. But for me personally, like, I was like that at some point in time. But now I'm extremely busy. But I would still love to have a good narrative game. And I, 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 I've, I found that I've watched way more movies than played games just because of that. So... Um, I really wanted to do a game that would be the length of a Hollywood movie, basically. So Brooklyn is, is about 90 minutes to complete. And um, that's kind of what I'm trying to do with that, so that people you know, who want to spend the same amount of time as you would with a movie can get a full cinematic experience out of it mm -hmm. in a similar amount of time. Um, so, yeah, 
Um, but that obviously has some consequences if you want to make a trailer because 90 minutes is not, you know, it's not 70 hours of content. Like if you make a trailer for Call of Duty, there's so much stuff that you can do with that. Right. But for Bruegel, if I'm going to put five minutes of the best scenes in there, you've probably seen a whole bunch of really cool scenes already because, mm-hmm. you know, those 90 minutes aren't just all um, jump scares or, or special effects and everything. A lot of it is, is, is just very atmospheric. So, um, the trailer for Bruegel will be out pretty soon now. Um, I'm probably going to release it around the time the submission for South by Southwest is due. And, um, yeah, it's going to be um, about 90 seconds. <laughs> and um, the people who've seen it say it's really cool. And it's completely, um, I mean, it uses assets from Bruegel, but it's completely, you know, you can watch the entire trailer and get zero spoilers, which I also think is a really cool thing because I am so fed up with watching trailers for movies or games and then just have seen the best parts of the entire thing already. Yeah. So, um, yeah, check out the trailer for Brooklyn. and I can get you a link to it at, when it comes out, if, if that's helpful. <laughs> oh, yeah, totally. No, that's awesome. Yeah. Um, well, let's talk a little bit more about... Um, I think I'm just listening to, like, all the different, like, like invisible design parameters that people probably, sure. on the user end, they never think about, but as far as, like, how many of these sort of, like, back-end things really inform the design and how much time that you could spend on... Um, different items. I, I always think it's interesting kind of getting that peek behind the curtain as far as that goes. Um, but you also teach students um, yeah. at Miami University. Do you have them, speci- and you teach game design, do you ever have them do work specifically with um, games for or about older adults in, in their in their assignments? Yeah, we've done, um, I mean, it's not something um, recurring because at the end of the day, um, you know, Miami is just about to launch its games major. <laughs> um, even though we're ranked, well, we're uh, ranked number three amongst uh, public universities on the Princeton Review right now, which is pretty spectacular. But, um, Good job. Well, thank you. Um, but at the end, <laughs> but, uh, you know, it's uh, with the games major just coming out now, um, in the past, it's been mostly just doing very core kind of, uh, courses and mm-hmm. um, trying to get in, uh, students to break into the industry is already a lot of work because it's such a specialized field oftentimes. Um, and we, we've had good successes with that, but at this point in time, games and aging is something that's starting to come on the rise. Like um, every year I see more and more publications on the topic. Every year I get more and more requests for, for reviews and then my citations just keep going up. Um, and I get more interest from the industry, from industry folks as well. But it's still just something that's kind of on the fringe, and it's not like you know. For example, esports completely blew up, and everybody's doing esports now. But games and aging is still fairly small. Um, so Miami is going to roll out an esports management program um, with a lot of backing, which is going to be huge. Mm-hmm. Um, but right now, for games and aging, it's been mostly like okay. I organize a workshop that's not necessarily part of a course, but it gets spread to the students, and I get a whole bunch of game design students signing up for it then. So it's um, it, it really depends on what I am doing myself. Like if I want to introduce a new indie game to, uh, or an esports game, which I've done as well, to um, older adults, then um, I, I put out an announcement on the student Discord, and I get a whole bunch of game design students that want to check it out. Um, the biggest thing we've ever done at one point was when the AARP, uh, what is it like? <laughs> the the organization for real possibilities, what they call it now, because it's no longer aging populations. But um, <laughs> oh wow, I didn't know that. 
Yeah, or it used to be ARP used to stem. Yes. Yeah, and it, it's real possibilities what they call it now. Huh. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I have never felt that there was anything wrong with retired people, honestly. But yeah, <laughs> but um, yeah, they did a, a game jam, um, an actual competition, even on in, in association with Hevga, um, for um, oh, sorry, the Higher Education Video Game Alliance. So basically, an organization that combines the 140 video game programs in the U.S. or something, mm -hmm. or actually internationally, not just in the U.S. And um, so, yeah, they collaborated and they did a game design competition for games for older adults. Um, and me, we have, we have, I invested in that highly and um, or my team ended up being the runner-ups for that as well. So I think that's the biggest thing that I've ever done with students on it because that was, you know, we did a local competition at Miami first and then we selected the best ones and then the best ones got submitted to it and then we traveled to E3 with them where the, the, the finals of the competition would be. So that was really cool. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's really a matter of, you know, what the possibilities out there are and how real they are, I guess. <laughs> well, and I guess, too, it's like you've got an interesting sort of, you know, on one hand, you know, making games for older people, you know, a known thing as far as, like, this is something that you can do as far as, like, a specific audience, like a specific market, games for older people. But then you also don't want to make it seem like, every other game that isn't for older people, you know, mm -hmm. that, you know, that either old people play, like, let's remember how to drive my car. Sorry for right. being stereotypical here. You know what I mean? <laughs> Versus World of Warcraft, you know? So right. it's like an interesting sort of, you know, dynamic between those two things, wanting, you know, older people to be able to play any game and encouraging them to play any game versus, right. you know, specific games for them. And it might just, you know, come across as, uh, like almost too niche, maybe. Yeah, maybe. But um, I mean, from my perspective, in, in all of my talks, I, I I really try to to reinforce the idea that you don't necessarily need to make games that are entirely different. It's just if you design for older adults, they have there there are aesthetics, as we call them, um, emotional outcomes that are more preferred or that are more prevalent for them in the research excuse me than you would have with younger audiences for example with, with older adults in the research we see that being able to co contribute back to society in some way by playing the game is a, a powerful motivator for them to play a game hmm. like i don't think you would ever have a 12 year old be like yeah i'm gonna play this game because i got to give back to society like <laughs> that'd be really weird um so <laughs> You know, um, and you've got a lot of things like that with, with, with the older population where they just have different motivators um, or, yeah, just being able to play with somebody that they really care about is, is, is also something you find there. I mean, um, yeah, so they, they just have different motivational profiles, but at the same time, a good game, you know, is typically a game that will be beloved from people between 7 and 77 years of age, I guess. Mm -hmm. um, and the other thing is... Um, you can kind of make a parallel here with, with paint games. Like when, um, when, when people first started looking at designing games for, for, for girls, um, you know, a lot of the games that they started to make were very stereotypical, where it's just like, okay, let's make a game, and it's all about brushing your hair like a Barbie doll kind of thing or something. And obviously nobody wants that. I mean, um, well, there might be some joy in there for, for, for uh some young girls to play a game like that, but at the end of the day, that it, that doesn't define them as people who play video games. And 
Um, you know, a lot of games that are marketed to that audience um, can do a lot of different things and a lot more empowering things than just that. Um, and with older adults, we've, we've seen the same thing where like every game is like, yeah, um, let's, you know, in this game, you're going to do something about um, fall prevention or it's going to exercise your muscles or now you're no longer going to uh, be at risk for dementia if you just play this game. And, you know, when people play games, they don't want to be stereotyped like that. Um, and I think, you know, I, I really try to get that across in, in, in um, the talks that I give about games and aging. It's, um, you know, you want something that's empowering if you're designing for older adults and that really understands their culture and that understands that while there is decline with age, there's also growth in, in, in later life. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a lot different than just stereotyping somebody. Really interesting. Well, and I think too, you know, especially since this is, you know, games in schools and libraries, you know, thinking about, you know, how, you know, teachers can create, you know, activities and experiences for kids to play, you know, with their, with their, um, with their, with their grandparents and, you know, whomever else is in their lives or for librarians when they have a significant older population you know, how you can get them exposed to and playing games. Because especially if you could create some gaming groups for older citizens at local libraries, you know, I mean, I could just see that absolutely taking off because you've got, you know, social interaction, you've got structure, you've got purpose, um, recreation, fun, intellectual challenge. I mean, there's so many really great benefits that I think your work is illustrating um, as far as how teachers and librarians could be adding to the gaming community. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, and it's, it's actually really easy to do. <laughs> that's, the, that's the trickiest part of it, honestly, because you'd expect, well, we've got to convince people that much, but uh, once you can get people to actually play something, it just, it just happens so... Because everybody has played during their lives. I mean, that's how we learn. Yeah. So... Um, yeah, I mean, it's very important to, to play when you're growing up because that's how you learn, but it's also just as important to play as you're growing old. And um, you can see that really, really quickly, and especially if you can get the social interaction going. Because I, I remember when I for the, when I um, got to the U.S., the first time I did the Oxford Older Gamers Club, um, you know, I had a couple of people coming in for it. I, you know, I just put out flyers and everything. That's how they were recruited because mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, I didn't really know anybody. And um, I was like, okay, what are we gonna play? You know, because this is gonna be the first game. This game bombs. I'm, 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 right. you know, I'm, I'm never gonna get them back. Right. Um, and I also, it's not that I can just play any game. I need a game that I can just install on on, on twelve computers um, within the confines of the Miami library, because mm -hmm. um, IT doesn't let you just put anything on there, and it, it needs to be free and, and so forth. So. Um, I basically end up with, okay, Blizzard might be good for this, because Blizzard, if I just install um, Battle.net on it, they have a bunch of things on there, and I thought Hearthstone would be really great. Mm -hmm. um, you know, because, well, Hearthstone is not too fast-paced and everything. It's very tactical. The graphics are great, and their tutorial would be awesome and all that kind of stuff. So Hearthstone bombed really, really badly, um, because... The tutorial wasn't good for older adults, and I mean, I could see, I really liked how the tutorial was done, mm -hmm. but, you know, it was never tested with older adults that didn't play games, clearly, because mm -hmm. um, there were so many 
things in there that they just that you that gamers have no issues with whatsoever, and yeah, they just got stuck. I've never seen anybody actually lose around in the tutorial before. I've never lost a. It's, it's really. I thought you couldn't lose. Well, apparently you can. <laughs> like, and then you're there like, oh my gosh, and you're trying to explain why he's losing. Well, it's so obvious, but like, yeah. I mean, so Hearthstone didn't go well, and I was really like, okay, I need to switch the game right now, and we can get back to Hearthstone later, but nobody's entertained by this. Because a lot of the older adults are also like, we're here as a group, and now we're, you know, we're all going to do this one-on-one -on -one thing versus a computer? No. I mean, this sucks. And I'm like, okay, um, which of these games... You know, would be, and I was like, let's do Diablo. Like, let's just go with Diablo, I think, because most of them were men, you know, like, uh, that's just how it ended up, because the statistics typically have more female players with older adults, but that, that didn't happen for this session. Right. So I was like, okay, let's just do Diablo, uh, put them in groups of four and have them do Diablo, and that was amazing. That just worked so well. Like, that was literally what they wanted, and it's just, you know... Killing some zombies, um, grabbing some loot, but you're there, all four of you, you're laughing at people doing stupid stuff and almost getting killed, you're helping each other out, and boom, it just ran automatically, and, and that's just how easy it, it can be. Um, I wish Overwatch would have been out at the time, that, that would have been fun to watch. <laughs> but, um, you know, that's kind of how these things go. Um, but yeah, you can never really, you know, you need to play this with older adults, and that's the biggest thing for the industry, I guess, because... I remember the first time, because I've actually taught computer classes to older adults when I was doing my PhD. I was just like, I'm just going to do this on the side and see what I can learn from this. Mm -hmm. And uh, I remember, um, like, uh, we're doing uh, Minecraft. Mm -hmm. And um, <laughs> this, this, this one lady, for the very first time, is walking in a 3D environment. And, um, you know, she's standing um, against a wall, like, her face is literally, her nose is probably touching the wall in the game, and she just has a red screen because it's a red brick wall. <laughs> and um, she's like, I think I broke my computer. I'm like, oh, God. Um, oh, no, you're fine. You're fine. You're just standing really close to a wall. She's like, how do I get away from the wall? I'm like, well, just turn around. How do I turn around? Just turn around your mouse. So what she does is she grabs the mouse, she picks it up, she flips it 300, you know, 180 degrees on the, what is it, the, the horizontal axis, mm -hmm. <laughs> and puts it back down with the mouse buttons facing down. So, like, uh, no, no, you want to just turn it around. Like, you know, I actually have to show her, like, on the vertical axis, you turn it 360 degrees, and look, now you can, now you can move back. And she's like, oh, okay, now, yeah, and that didn't make sense. Uh, but that's what you're working with sometimes, you know, where it's just like right. no concept whatsoever of how a computer works even. And, um, you know, aside from that, Minecraft went really well too, by the way. Uh, well, and I think honestly, you know, this is something that, I mean, I can laugh a little bit, but there's definitely things that, you know, you know, the, the sort of like the joke is if you can't figure out how to work your phone, like have your kid do it, you know? I mean, right. I have a master's in educational technology, but there are definitely times where, my students know more than I do. They pick it up faster. I mean, and part of it's like you said earlier, you know, I only have so much time to spend to like, you know, do certain things. And so, you know, whereas they have less responsibilities, less, you know, they've got more time so they can just, Hey, I'm going to pick this up and do this and make a funny thing to show my friend, you know, our lives are a little bit different. Um, but I think that's one thing though, that definitely for education as a whole, 
is problematic where a lot of adults who are actively teaching, not necessarily even falling into that older adult category, you know, where our lack of, you know, sort of like technical te technological knowledge can hold back our students because we rely too much on, you know, like older, more traditional methods of instructional technology and we're just missing out in so many different ways that we can connect better with our students using this. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's been, that's been an issue for quite some time, I think. And honestly, like, I'm in the College of Education, Health and Society, aside from the Armstrong Group, mm -hmm. um, you know, as a professor in education. And I mean, it's, you know, all my colleagues there struggle with that issue. Because for me, it's it's all like you know. You've heard my backstory. Like I've I've basically grown grew up with a computer next to me. I'm probably I mean apparently I'm still a millennial actually. So whatever. But um, <laughs> uh, the thing is, like I I did grow up with a computer while most of the people that are my age um, didn't. Mm -hmm. And the difference is is already highly noticeable on how easy it is for me to pick up technology in comparison to you know people that I've grew up with. Um, so I think, yeah, these things are, are going to get more and more pronounced and you can really see it um, with the professors in, in the College of Education. I mean, these are people that really try hard to get all the new technology and that work really hard on putting these things together. But at the same time, they have to put in so much work and it doesn't come as a second nature while uh, these younger generations just pick up these things automatically. And yeah. I think for me, even like, I remember being at GDC 2009 or 2008 where for the first time I did one of the brainwave controllers, mm -hmm. then, I, then I felt for the first time like, oh my gosh, if this thing becomes a thing, we are so screwed. <laughs> like, there is no way, like this is gonna be how it was probably for my mom when she first got an iPhone. Like, mm -hmm. I have no frame of reference for this. And no, or when my mom got a, a keyboard for the first time, you know, cause like with the brainwave con controllers, it's you have to think about something so that the synapses in your head will light up in a certain way to perform. Like, that is a skill that I have not practiced in my life whatsoever. So if we ever have something like that, there's, I don't think there's any way that I could, you know, um, use a computer that, that uses that as its input device. So imagine doing your taxes with a brainwave computer. Does that computer. totally <laughs> invalidate everything you just said? The fact that you couldn't learn that technology means that you won't be able to function. <laughs> yeah, could be, could be. But like you know, that's that, that's that, that's probably what it is when you're 80 years old, and then you got this 30 year old guy who's like, "Hey, try out Minecraft." <laughs> yeah. Well, it's I think so easy. Anything, empathy is always good for a designer, for a teacher, yeah. you know, librarian, anybody who works with um, any population. You know, if you don't know where they're coming from, then you can't serve them. You can't meet their needs if you don't know what those needs are. And I think in some ways, you know, having that experience, you know, from a first person perspective is a good one because it does make you more empathic um, and patient probably when you're dealing with other people who are learning technology, like the, the woman who didn't understand, like just even like the terminology that you're saying, just turn around, mm -hmm. you know, for you, that's a basic rote, you know, utility type of action for her completely novel and new she's never done anything yeah. like that before you know so i think it's always a good idea i mean it's always good to you know put, put, you know throw yourself way outside of your own comfort zone i think to you know, empathize yeah. with others yeah like imagine you know you're trying to use a brainwave controller for a computer and then just the instructor goes like okay now 
think inverted or something. Yeah. <laughs> you know, think the same thing, but inverted. <laughs> what? Right. Yeah, no, that's... Like, you know, it could, that, that's probably the equivalent of, like, turn around the mouse. <laughs> right, right. That's so interesting. I want to try that. Um, <laughs> one last thing about Brukel, and this was kind of interesting, because at Nisaga, the North American Simulation and Gaming Association, which is where we met and became excellent friends, Mr. Bob and I, um, I yes. guess I just demoted you from Dr. Bob to Mr. Bob, but that's okay. Oh, Mr. Bob, excellent friend. <laughs> <laughs> that's not a demotion. We, we did have a that's an upgrade. So if you want to hang out with Bob and I, come there next year. Um, but anyway, um, so I went to your session because I kind of felt like I'd be a jerk if I didn't, you know, after like talking about this game and all the other stuff. But you, what I, what happened was uh, very different than what I. I guess I had anticipated. And so Nisaga's big thing is um, everything is very hands-on. Like in any session, it's usually about, you know, 10, 15 minutes of talking, and then you just start doing the thing that they're talking about, whether it's designing an escape room or, you know, anything else under the sun. And so what I thought was interesting for your session on Brukel, it wasn't about, okay, here's how you program a game or here's, you know, how you interview or whatever. What you gave us were scripts from the game one was from the uh you know like sort of like the happier memories part and the other script was um one of the darker memories from the uh the war part and what we were told to do was basically read through the script and figure out how you could gamify it how you could make a game by it and so i was on the uh the team that had uh the like happier childhood script and so we were talking about you know, different things like, you know, this could be like Dead of Winter, this could be like this, this could be like this, you know, all these different types of game ideas. The other team, they did the same thing with their darker piece. And I remember at one point I looked up at you and I said, is it weird to listen to people use your family as game components? And I, and uh, do you remember that? Yeah, yeah. No, I've actually talked about that at some point to somebody. I don't, <laughs> yeah. well, that I mean, was actually it, a very interesting question. Yeah, well, it's like, go ahead. Well, you see my last name, right? I mean, it's, it's very difficult to pronounce for, for um, somebody who grew up speaking English already. So when you guys are doing all the local place names and, and first names from people in the family already, that was, the, you know, just the, the foreign uh, aspect of it, like how foreign that sounds. Because like, everybody's speaking um, American English in that session, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, but... You know, in between the English, there's there's all these references to my brother, to... Because, mm -hmm. <laughs> like, the Wilders thing in there as well, I mean, that's where my childhood home is. Like, you know, all, all these all these place names and all these, they're, they're all extremely familiar. And, um, yeah, it, it was <laughs> it was funny when you asked the question, because it was probably five minutes after I was thinking about, oh, my gosh, this is so peculiar. I wish my grandmother could see it. Because that's... Uh, I, you know, right now, I just submitted Brugel to the Experimental Gameplay Workshop at GDC, which I don't think we have a chance of getting into because, oh my god, the Experimental Gameplay Workshop, I mean, you know, the games that are in there are so amazing, like, that would be one of the biggest honors in my life to make it in there. But I think, you know, Brugel is, um, has some things that make it valid to submit it, um, but the chances of getting in, I think, are really slim because it's, it's, it's a very low acceptance rate and, yeah. The, the, the quality is really high. But I was thinking, like, if I get into that thing, I'm, I'm, I'm Skyping and I'm, I'm taking my grandmother on stage with me because, you know, the experimental gameplay workshop is a thousand, two thousand people in one room. Mm -hmm. 
and my grandmother is still like, nobody cares about this stuff. <laughs> and I'm like, well, I'm, in the, I'm on the front page of the national newspaper now next to a picture of Bill Gates who, you know, had done something in Belgium. Yeah. And then all of a sudden she's like, how did this happen? I'm like, well, I made a game about your life and people care. And she's like, how? <laughs> <laughs> so, and I think that's the, you know, that's the, the cool part of it. So I don't know where Bruegel is going to end up because I'm going to submit it. Um, the, what, one of the people who are curating the arcade at the Smithsonian is interested in it as well. Like, uh, maybe somebody, you know, I'm just hoping that I can nail one of those big fishes um, and do something so that I can, you know, can, can show her. Because it's really, really interesting because she doesn't understand English, but she will hear all those names as well when we're talking about it. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that's kind of the, yeah, it's really interesting. And I, I know it doesn't directly answer the question of the, of the game component, but that's pretty much how it feels. Um, yeah. It's more a, a sentiment than an intellectual uh, part of it, I guess. Um, you know, the intellectual part is just like, yeah, it's happening, you know, people care, my game design works, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. But the emotional part of it is what makes it extremely cool. Yeah. Um, and we'll, we'll see what happens. Like, I, I hope I can, you know, it'll go on Steam, it'll go on HIO, I hope I can keep it alive as long as possible. Because maybe if it does really well, I'll, I'll see if I can port it to a PlayStation or something. But that's the bigger thing, obviously, you know, the shelf life on these things is not 100 years. Like. Or it hasn't been like that. If you look at really good games like Baldur's Gate or something, they're making enhanced versions of that so it still works on the systems of today. Mm -hmm. But there's plenty of games from that day and age that are a real hassle to get working, um, even with emulators and everything. But at the end of the day, you know, maybe it'll end up in a collection somewhere. I don't know. Um, but we'll see. Um, um, yeah, that's, that's actually on my agenda for uh, later tonight or tomorrow to look for what the new exhibits are and what other World War II type of stuff is out there so I can um, pitch Bruegel and see where I can get it into because the biggest thing now is like I did all the work and I made it, now it needs to be uh, conserved in some kind of way, obviously. Yeah, well, and that's interesting too. And again, this is that sort of like interdisciplinary intersection where it's not just something that, you know, for if I design a tabletop game, it's going on a shelf and that's a pretty, you know, specific market for it. Yeah. Like all different types of avenues that people can yeah. interact with this game, whether it's in a library, where it's in a museum, yeah. you know, different exhibits. Um, oh yeah, because I was actually thinking thinking that, um, but I forgot to mention it because I kind of went on a tangent there about the EGW. But um, like as you said, like yeah, I gave you guys some scripts, but they're not really scripts. They're they're transcription. They're 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 literally her stories, and the way they are presented in the game is is you just hear her talking. Um, as an audio file on a cell phone. So the authenticity of it, you know, a lot of the times when you make a cool indie game, um, there are these venues that you can use, but for Bruegel, I, I haven't even explored the, the, the historical venues at this point. So it's going to be really interesting to see, because I don't know how many games that are out there that really do this kind of stuff, where it's, it's, it's a game that is authentic, um, where you have people's, fast come to life through their own voices um, in the most cutting-edge modern-day game engine um, out there, potentially. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I think that's a, that's a really cool thing about Bruegel, and we'll see where it goes. Well, that actually brings me to my last question, which is about um, if teachers, if librarians wanted to do a project where they had people design games for older adults or design with an older adult, a grandparent, or design for them, 
because um, that's one of the things that you talk about um, in your yeah. TED Talk and, um, and other uh, speeches I've seen where you talk about the importance of designing, you know, for older adults with older adults. Um, what are there, is there any last pieces of advice or what you would like to see when it comes to people trying to do this? If, if I wanted to do this, if a librarian wanted to do this, what are the things that we should know when we go into this? Right. Yeah. I mean, I think the biggest thing is just, um, you can do this. Like maybe <laughs> I was just thinking like Obama probably said it really well, you know, yes, you can, like, you can totally do this. I don't, it doesn't matter who you are. You can do something um, with the technology that's out there. There's something out there for everybody to do something meaningful with games and your older loved ones in your lives. Um, and it is so worth it. It's, 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 it's really, it's going to be one of the coolest things you'll, you'll ever do. You'll, um, you know, you'll, you'll get to know them from angles that you um, might not have known them as much as well. Um, there's, um, it's just already really cool to just do the collaborative part of it. Um, and there are so many benefits there too. Reminiscing in it has, has, has a lot of health benefits. So, you know, if you love somebody, you want to do that for them um, already for all the health benefits that are associated with it. But um, aside from that, just being able to put something together, even if it just comes down to you have everybody in the family play it. I mean, it doesn't have to be a digital game. It could just be a board game or, um, or if, if, if you're, if you're not that technical, you can look at something like Twine, um, which is at twinery.org. Um, it's, it's, it's software that's really easy to just make interactive stories with. And you could, um, for, for Bruegel, actually, I had a student, I gave him, uh, the English transcripts of Bruegel and, um, you know, in a week he made an interactive um, version of it that's all text-based, but that was already really fun to play. And I uh, tested it out with people, and they were like, "Wow, this is a really good story." I'm like, "Yeah, you know, these stories are, you know, when you when you really have people reminisce about stuff that made their lives meaningful to them, you will get good stories out of it. And there's so much that you can do with it. So I think um, that's the biggest thing um, I get from a lot of people, like. You know, it's, yeah, this is all really cool, but I don't know. And it's basically just take the step. You have nothing here but the game. And and that's, um, yeah, I think that's that's what makes it really interesting. And um, feel free to, you know, get in touch with me if if, if, um, if you got questions or if there's things that, that are thresholds that you need to get over. I'm, I'm happy to answer a couple of emails on this stuff, too. Cool. Well, that actually uh, wraps things up really, really nicely. Um, thank you so much for being on Games in Schools and Libraries. Hey, my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah. So where can people <laughs> find you online if they want to hunt you down to ask these mystical right. questions? Well, I've got a pretty good website, so, but you'll probably have to put a link in there because it's bobtheshutter.be. <laughs> but uh, yeah, there's a contact section in there. Um, I would just use that and the links to the social media are on there as well. Okay. Um, yeah, there's the, the biggest ones that I use are my um, my Twitter account. Like uh, Facebook is used a lot. A lot of the older adults that see that learn about Bruegel just contact me on Facebook these days because hmm. um, I got a public Facebook uh, page set up, so it's really easy to contact me through that. And uh, if you're old fashioned and you want to drop me an email, I've got a form. <laughs> cool, excellent, very good. Well, Bob, you're a ton of fun. Your work is really interesting, and I'm really appreciative oh, of the time you. that you uh, spent with me today. So thanks so much. Hey, my pleasure. It's really fun doing this. Cool. Awesome. Yeah. Well, 
this has been another fantastic episode of, if I don't say so myself, um, <laughs> it really was fantastic. Um, so this is Kathleen Mercury. As a reminder, you can find me on Twitter at Mercury with seven M's. You can also uh, go to KathleenMercury.com where I post all my game design teaching resources for free. If you've got an idea for the show and you'd like to be on it, shoot me a line and I'm always interested to talk with other people, collaborate about games, game design in the classroom. So thanks so much and we'll talk to you next time. Have fun. Bye. <laughs> <laughs>Thank you for listening to Games and Schools and Libraries. You can find out more about Inverse Genius and the people who create the Games and Schools and Libraries podcast by visiting us at inversegenius.com, where we have other great shows such as On Board Games, On RPGs, On Minis Games, and The Room Escape Divas. Games and Schools and Libraries podcast is produced in association with the Georgetown County Library System. You can come and play games with me at the Waccamonic Branch Library in Georgetown County, South Carolina, in Polly's Island. 